Congregation, I greet you in the name of Christ. It is a privilege to be back with you again. And today, I'm glad to have most of my family with me. My wife, Lydia, my oldest, Isaiah, and our youngest, Micah. My middle son is with my dad this morning. may get him here one day. This morning, call it a pretext. I would call your attention to Ephesians chapter 2. This will lead into our text for the morning. Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 11 through 21. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, 11 through 21. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that. You were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now I would call your attention to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 First Peter, chapter two, verses nine and ten. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of his out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We often benefit from being reminded not only of what we've been saved from, but more significantly, what we've been saved to. And this is what we're considering today and what I've 
described as our consecrated calling. That is that that holy calling by being referred to as holy. We understand that we are being set apart by God for a divine service to which all Christians are called. What a marvelous transaction God has worked through redeeming and restoring people to himself. The New Testament speaks vividly to the radical change God's spirit affects in us. We see, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's not received a facelift. He's not just warmed over. He's a new creation. He's completely changed. The old has passed away. Behold or marvel. Look. The new has come. Completely new has come. This highlights this transformation. And that's really what it is, you know, a metamorphosis, a complete change from one species of being into another. To emphasize this fundamental change, Paul, in that same letter, Ask some rhetorical questions. Notice in 2 Corinthians 6 also. Verses 14 through the first half of 16. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. See, we, we often will apply this to marriage and it certainly can fit. But here he's speaking even more broadly than that. Just our partnership with the world. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness. You'll notice each of these is framed as a rhetorical question. What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We're the temple of the living God. So his applied his implied answer to each of those questions is absolutely nothing. There is no partnership. We've been called out of that. We've been changed. We've been made new. So you can see this foundational spiritual resurrection that we've experienced in salvation. And as a result, we transition our loyalties and responsibilities. Philippians three. Seventeen through twenty one. Speaks of this. Paul says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it. We await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's an incredible change. It's a remarkable contrast there. So we who are in Christ now have a completely new set of rules and obligations to live by established In and by the Lord in his word, as we're now citizens of God's kingdom. Notice in our text this morning. In first Peter, four great blessings by means of our roles and responsibilities in Christ because of who we now are. These truths are applicable 
to everyone who believes in and builds their lives on Jesus Christ, the chosen and precious cornerstone of verse six. Notice that in our text. First Peter two, six, for it stands in scripture. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious as Christ himself. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. We'll notice first here in verse nine, we will be laboring more in verse nine than we will in in ten. Notice, first of all, we're described as a chosen race. Peter begins verse nine with a sharp contrast to the end of verse eight. Notice how those were described. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. The person of Christ, who he is, what he did. Is a stumbling block to unbelievers. They can't get over it. It's foolishness, Paul describes. That's why uh, the preaching is considered foolish to unbelievers. The Christian community is distinguished from those. You'll notice where he says they they disobey the word. But you, this is a very sharp contrast here. And of course, Isaiah 43, 20 and 21 speaks to this. My chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. He's isolated the people. Out of this world of darkness for some very distinct responsibilities. And one of them is to praise his name. We understand creation does that, doesn't it? We see that in the Psalms. Creation declares the glory of the Lord. It's created to do that and it does it without argument. Isn't it something that God's creation, that is non-humans, praise God by doing exactly what it is they've been called to do. And yet we often do not when we have the greatest reason to rejoice and to praise him. For we have been redeemed from condemnation. And yet we have to constantly be reminded the flower grows as it's designed to do. The stars twinkle as they're designed to do. The sun shines. The moon reflects it every day as they're designed to do. No question, no argument. And yet we have to be reminded to praise the Lord. Pitiful and remarkable. But we're still people and we're still here. We've not been made perfect yet. We're works in progress. Notice why God spiritually formed us. To declare his praise. That's what we see in 10 at the end of verse nine. This language draws from the Old Testament. Israel is repeatedly referred to as God's chosen people. But this nonetheless applies to us. The New Testament. Example is the true Israel of God. Our founders is a Jew, the true Jew, the consummate Jew. Was he not? And yet he obeyed God fully, the true Jew. So all of us in Christ So to speak, spiritually, true Jews will notice language. See, Galatians chapter three, verse nine speaks of this. It's easy to miss, but we don't want to miss it. Galatians three, nine. You speak of father Abraham as the father of the Jewish nation, right? Notice Galatians three, nine. So then those who are of faith, are we? We're people of faith in the Lord Christ. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Notice then verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And then chapter six, still in Galatians six sixteen. 
And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and emphasizing upon the Israel of God. Israel of God. Sam Storms comments, believers have been united by faith in Jesus to be a new people, a new race. This kind of race, notice the language here, this kind of race has nothing to do with ethnicity precisely because this race is composed of every ethnicity. It's a spiritual race. This is significant. It's a spiritual race, a chosen race, defined not by color or culture, but by creed. And our creed is Christ. Christ Jesus crucified, risen from the dead, interceding at God's right hand for us. This race is defined by the one in whom we believe, Jesus Christ himself, no other. This word for race here is used very distinctly here, differently than elsewhere. It's translated that way here as race. The word means kindred or simply kind, as in a kind of something. So believers are essentially a distinct kind of person being chosen by God for a specific purpose, which he then defines at the end of the verse. We're chosen race. We're also a royal priesthood, and this is significant for what we do each Lord's Day in particular, but every other day of the week included a royal priesthood. Referring to Exodus 19.6, which says, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. MacArthur notes that Israel forfeited her privilege of priestly dominion because of her apostasy and rejection of the Messiah. But all those who believe in Jesus as Messiah and trust in him alone for salvation receive the privilege of becoming royal priests. We speak of Jesus as our Lord. That means he's king. He rules over a kingdom of which we who are in him are a part. That makes us royal. In Christ, brothers of Christ. And he declares us to be priests, as it were. That's an interesting thing. You'll recall 1 Corinthians three sixteen and 17 reads, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You do not need a structure. It's helpful and it's comfortable, but you do not need a structure to have a church. You need a people who have been redeemed to have a church. And we understand the language of the New Testament here specifically telling us who that temple is. Are you a believer in Jesus? Then you most certainly are. Notice also language about this Ephesians 2.22. Tells us in him that is in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit and incidentally for the spirit. We understand at the beginning of Ephesians, it is the spirit who indwells us as God's promise that Christ is returning for us. Also notice first Corinthians six, 
19 and 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Some refer to the Spirit as an it. We just notice language here of him being a whom. That's indicating personhood. You are not your own. My life, my body, my right. No, it's not. God owns you. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. God owns you. He made you. Christ was slaughtered for you. So, glorify God in your body. We, we take care of this temple. We are to take care of this temple. Keep it clean. Make it a place fit for the presence of God's spirit. You'll notice in what we're reading, there's a lot of language that that smacks a lot of the Old Testament. That was actually deliberate here. There's a lot of parallel. We see a lot of fulfillment, a lot of things coming to fruition, to completion here. Whereas in the Old Testament, priests brought in sacrifices to the temple using an atoning altar. The blood flowed. We understand it flowed far and wide. A ghastly practice that was required as a reminder for the the heinousness of their sin. And really, we understand from Hebrews that 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 animal sacrifice, it didn't really pay for the sins. Think of it more like a spiritual Band-Aid. It didn't really do the job, but it was a regular reminder that you cannot pay too much. You cannot pay enough for the sin. And so it was an everyday practice. And yet, as Christians, God declares us to be priests. Christ himself, the perfect lamb of God, given for God's people. Can you imagine how difficult it would have been for some of these people, for many of these people, to accept that suddenly there's one single sacrifice that does it for all time? That was not their experience. We have to continually sacrifice. And now you're telling us that there's this one lamb that's now going to be good forever for everyone. Yeah, it was just too much, too good to be true. Can't possibly. So here we are, believers in Christ, the perfect lamb of God, and now we're declared to be priests. Well, if the animal sacrifice is gone, what are we supposed to do now? Priests sacrifice. That's what they do. So now what do we do? Notice the significance of Christ. Hebrews 7.27 tells us that he or Jesus has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did... This once for all time when he offered himself. Our priesthood is a royal one in that we have come into service under the headship of our king of kings and our Lord of lords. And our proper service to God is guided by Paul's admonition in Romans 12. Romans 12. This is just the beginning. You notice there it indicated that the priest had offers. A sacrifice first for his own sins before that for the others. Well, it begins with us. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Well, that might have made some people nervous. You mean I'm supposed to sacrifice my own body just like we did the lambs and the, <laughs> the bulls? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Starting to make a little more sense there why he would speak of our bodies as a temple. And now we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Do not be conformed to this world, to its way of thinking, its way of belief, its behavior, its its denial, its deliberate rejection of, of God and his Messiah. Do not be conformed to that. But be transformed by the renewal, the cleansing, the washing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. The word washes us. We notice in the, towards the end of Ephesians chapter 5, it's talking about in verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify that is clean, make holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, the word itself. Makes us clean spiritually. It works. Holy cleansing within us. Old Testament priests mediated God's blessings to their neighboring nations, while New Testament priests announce his grace and truth, truth worldwide. Precisely why there's a relief sale coming up, right? It's exactly what's, ta what's taking place. Providing necessary resources that this very thing might continue. As priests, we too offer sacrifices to the Lord, though ours are of a vastly different kind, thankfully. Thankfully. For one, we pursue holy, honorable lives. Remember, it starts with us. Paul calls us to re be renewed in our mind. Cleaning us from, from the defiling presence of the world. Around us, that domain of darkness, that contrast Paul was comparing us to earlier. First Peter. So you're, you're in the right place. Chapter one, verses 13 through 16. Peter says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded. Be serious about it. Think seriously about this. This is significant. It's important. It's so important that he would include this in the text that he's given us. Be sober minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You recall in the Gospels, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Well, in verse 14, as obedient children, that is those who are keeping the commands of Christ, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. We're also to offer praise. That includes what we do here Sunday morning, that includes our singing, but praise is even broader than that. Recall in Psalm 47, 6. 
we read simply, sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises for God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. So absolutely we sing. We also see. Hebrews 12. Yes, we're all over the place. I'm trying to show a a continuity. It's deliberate. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. The writer of Hebrews has been emphasizing this tremendous kingdom that is coming. That's a a forever kingdom. And so he concludes here saying, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It can't be toppled. It can't be broken down. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. You'll recall Peter telling us in first Peter one about being sober minded. Well, as we're sober minded in our thinking, in our belief and in our practice, that will assist us in offering to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. He is a mighty God. He's not a thing to be trifled with. C.S. Lewis said, no, he's not safe. Also, we see, though, in chapter 13 there of Hebrews, verses 15 and 16. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. We're directed in Colossians 3 to be thankful. Those heart attitudes that one cannot see. But which God does. Scripture says he looks at the heart, not at the outside like we do. Sometimes we'll hear someone say, well, so and so has a good heart. No, he doesn't. That's his problem. That's why he needs a redeemer. He's got a heart problem. The heart is desperately wicked. Scripture tells us who can understand it. Implied answer, no one. And so it's actually a bit of a frightening thing to know that. As we also see in Hebrews, that God does look at the heart as a surgeon with a scalpel. He gets at the center of things. But we understand that he's good and he's gracious and he's loving towards his people. And then it is by his good hand that we prosper, that he sustains us, and that when God begins his spiritual surgery, we come out for the better. So it's a good thing. Another sacrifice that we do, so to speak, is we remember Psalm 77. Psalm 77, verses 11 through 14. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. 
Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. And then notice in Isaiah 63, verse 7. I discovered there are far more places than this. This is just a sampling. It's all over. Isaiah 63, 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. You may recall the old gospel song, Count Your Many Blessings. I hated that song as a kid. I don't know why now. Now it's great. <laughs> Kids are strange, right? Count your many blessings. I know I was one. Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what God has done. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord and the praises of the Lord. According to all that the Lord has granted to us and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he's granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. We remember and we do well to remember. It assists us in being grateful. We also give thanks and we should. This is good and right. It's good to have an attitude of thanksgiving. It's also good to verbally express it. First Chronicles 16. First Chronicles chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually. One of the ways that we seek his presence continually is by spending time in his word continually. You'll recall Psalm 1 reminding us that blessed is the man or happy is the man who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. That simply means to spend careful, deliberate time reading the word. It's not the amount of scripture that you read each day. It's that you understand what you're reading and that it change you. Better to read one or two verses and really come to grasp its meaning, what it's telling you than to read three chapters and walk away wondering, what was that? Meditate. This is not some strange Eastern meditation that we hear about. This simply means take time to carefully read and study the word. Use resources made available to you. If that means a commentary, read it. If that means a word study, then do that. Look at multiple translations. Sometimes it will explain it in a way that's helpful to you. Notice also Psalm 107, just one verse. 
Psalm 107, verse 22. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. Boy, isn't that marvelous? That's a far more enjoyable sacrifice than than another bloodletting of a lamb. This is fantastic. Let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Songs of joy. Sometimes it may be fitting to sing a song of mourning for our own sin, for the sin of others. But it's very good to sing songs of thanksgiving and joy. We read elsewhere that the joy of the Lord is my strength. Would you be strong in the Lord? Rejoice in who God is. To God be the glory. Great things he hath done. That's worth thinking on. You'll recall Paul telling us in Philippians the ideal things to dwell on, didn't he? If there's anything, well, finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Let's not waste our moments on things that don't matter. Things that tear down without building up. That's a waste of time. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed another hour. I think of the, the parable of the, the man who distributed some monies to, to three servants to invest. The first two invested them, did well, and he praised them for it. And the third one buried it, squandered it, didn't do anything fitting with it. And the master was unhappy with him for that. What would we do with our moments? What would our master say to come back and see how we spend our moments? Would he be pleased to see that we've invested ours in these very things that Paul's talking about here? We minister to one another also. Philippians 4, verses 14 through 20. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, Paul says. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit or the profit that accrues to your account. Literally, I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Here it is. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Do you suppose that what it is you're doing to contribute to Cam is a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God? Surely it must be. Surely it must be. We understand in the Old Testament that the aroma from the sacrifices went up to God and he... He was pleased with that, and we we may think, well, what a foul smell that had to have been. How could that possibly be pleasing to God? 
the fragrant aroma. I mean, that, that sort of elicits ideas of perfume. <laughs> There's no way on earth. Why? But it was believing obedience to the living God. And so is providing the needs for another with no expectation of return. A pleasing aroma to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Thirdly, we're also a holy nation. Again, MacArthur notes, God sets apart believers primarily to have relationship with him. And service to him flows out of that relationship. Our positional sanctification, that is, in Christ, we are declared to be holy by God. That's positional. That's the way we stand with God. Positionally, we are sanctified, which means basically being cleansed from sin. And initially, he truly did that as we were saved, but then we continued our living, and so the sinning resumes. And so we must be continually or progressively sanctified through this life. But this positional sanctification makes a Christian a holy nation before God because his own righteousness is imputed or put into them. So on Calvary, the sin of man was imputed to Jesus who took it on himself. He was not sinner. He was not a sinner. He was not sinful. But ours was credited to him. And so he paid for that. And inasmuch as he is perfect man and God himself, what he did at the moment of salvation imputes his righteousness to us. And so practically, we are progressing in holiness by the work of the spirit. Recall, he who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Second Corinthians 318 reminds us that we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. The spirit of the living God. We are a holy nation through having been reconciled to King Jesus. Therefore, Paul asserts in Second Corinthians 520 we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You'll notice in context here, Paul was speaking to the Corinthian church, not just out street preaching to rank and file unbelievers. We understand Christians are capable of some pretty bad stuff. So what's the difference? Now, when I think of the difference between an unbeliever sinning and a believer sinning, for some reason, my mind makes a beeline back to when Peter denied Christ. We look at that and think, how could he possibly have denied his savior? As if we're thinking, well, I would never do that. What did Peter do after he realized what he had done? But he wept. And in fact, depending on your translation, I may tell you, he wept bitterly to say that he was grieved for having denied his Savior would be an understatement. Why would he grieve? 
but he was in Christ and the Holy Spirit of God himself indwelling him. Convicted him to use language familiar to us of that sin. And he was grieved knowing that he had just denied God himself. And so he was made right. When we grieve over sin, we confess it. We repent or turn away from it. And we turn right back to Christ. And so we do the same. We're a holy nation and we call others to that same that same king who made us that small wonder that Jesus would declare in Luke fifteen ten. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Heaven celebrates, shouldn't we? Finally, we are also a people for his own possession or depending on your translation, it may read a peculiar people. Well, this appeals to Deuteronomy 7, 6, for you are a people holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord, your God, has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the faces of the earth. God didn't choose the Ninevites, the Hittites, Perovites. He chose the Israelites as we remember them. While we know that God owns all things, Scripture declares as much. By the blood of Christ, God has purposefully purchased for himself a people uniquely blessed. And we see this back in our, our, our text, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. It tells us this, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And again, Titus 2.14 tells us, speaking of Christ, that he gave himself for us to redeem us, to buy us back, to pay for us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Is that a description of you? Zealous for good works? It's fitting for us. But to explain this phrase, peculiar people, it means actually a purchased possession. Well, the text that I read from ESV reads that way. For his own possession. It renders that way in Ephesians 1.14. Suggesting we... Have been bought. But we read that before where it says you are not your own for you've been bought with a price. We are a people for his own possession. Second Corinthians six sixteen, the second half of the verse reads, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Well, recall the walking that God did in Genesis three, eight after Adam and Eve had sinned, it says, and God walked through the garden in the cool of the morning. We get this picture that it was common practice for God to walk along with them in the garden. There's this unending fellowship that they had with God. The picture is that it would have been a serene thing, a, a calming thing, a, a fulfilling thing. And in this, in fact, is describing what God intends to do with his people for his own possession. But what a picture this is even of our arrival in glory. For we see in Revelation 21.3... It says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, 
The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And his church calls out, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Well, for this alone, we have great reason to live lives of exuberant praise, contentment and godliness before the Lord and others. Paul urges us in First Timothy two, one through three, that we pray for all people, especially those in authority or leadership over us. Why? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Well, finally, we notice then all of this culminating in verse 10 of our text this morning. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's somewhat reminiscent of what we read in Hosea, isn't it? Hosea is somewhat representative of God and his unfaithful wife, Gomer, in that case, representative of his unfaithful people, Israel. And they had children. And you'll recall one of them named Loami, not my people. Now we are a people. Because of Christ Jesus, we have been made a people. Peter's portrayal of Jesus Christ echoes his sermon in Acts 4, where he boldly declares, There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No one is exempt from a response to the revelation God has made of himself in Christ. It's a stark reminder that the dividing line between heaven and hell runs through the cross. That's why Christians are people of the cross. Recall Jesus' comforting words of John 10, 11 through 18. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold and I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. How comforting the good shepherd that we read of in Psalm 23. And it's because of him that we're able to rest. Dear believer, priest, citizen of the kingdom of God, having heard the voice of our good shepherd and follow for knowing his loving, compassionate voice. Let's respond in kind through faithful service to our Lord in his church by rendering authentic worship through whatever service.
calls us to. Let's pray. Our dear shepherd, we thank you for having laid down your life for the sheep. For your friends, and you call us friends. For having met our every spiritual need, that we may know you. Dear Lord, I pray that the Spirit would work among the congregation to restore joy of your salvation, to convict of sin, to make us clean by the washing of your word, that you would develop a maturity among the brethren, that you would renew, that you would make clean the minds, that we may lead quiet, godly, dignified lives, a pleasing aroma in your sight, and an effective witness in the world in which you've placed us. Forgive us, Lord, for the things that we have substituted the most holy faith for. Bring us back that we may rejoice in the God of our salvation. Make us useful. And Lord, we pray that you would take the gifts that we bring, the attempts that we make, and you would overcome any deficiencies, but you would use it that you would be glorified. People would be blessed. People, for your own possession in Christ's name.